We're continuing our series in Joshua, uh, and we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 9 tonight. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gideon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard reports of him all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in the country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them, and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the elders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibbet. The Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under curse, under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day, he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly. 
to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. This is God's word. Good evening. My name's Matt. I'm one of the ministers here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards if we've not met. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we rely on you for your help when we sit and hear you speak to us. Father, we need you to change us. We need you to make us obedient. Please, please, will you be at work amongst us tonight to build us up as your people. Amen. Friends, I have to tell you this. Tomorrow, you and I go to war. I'm not talking about the Iceland game. I'm not talking about beating up your colleagues who voted differently for you in the referendum. Phil's told us we're not, we're not to do that. Tomorrow, you and I go to war because of, because of this. Have a listen to what the Bible says. From 1 Peter, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Tomorrow, you and I are in a war. And more from 1 Peter, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Today, tomorrow, every day, in fact, of our lives as Christians, we go to war. And we go to war not, as Ephesians reminds us, to go to war against flesh and blood, to go to war against people. The Bible says that that a Christian is in a battle against spiritual forces. Spiritual forces, that is to say, Satan and sin. Today, tomorrow, you and I are in a war against Satan, against sin. And I take it that if we are Christians here tonight, that, that, that in our more somber, in our more sober moments, we realize we're going to need help in that battle. After all, what does, what does it say elsewhere in the Bible? Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Satan, uh, he's the father of lies. He's been the father of lies since the beginning. He's had millennia to perfect his devious tactics that would deceive you and me. He's a dangerous foe. And sin, the book of Proverbs tells us that our hearts are deceptive above all things. Which of us has never been duped by our sin into, into doing something that was against God's word. You and I are in a war, a battle against sin and against Satan. And tonight, as we look at this story uh, with um, the Israelites, the Gibeonites, we're going to. Our second two points really are going to be the main advice that God is going to give us about how to how to battle. As Christians. First, though, our first point really sets the scene, so we'll dive straight in. Verses 1 to 3. The nations gather to wage war against God's people. You can follow along on the back of the service sheet. So, you look, remember a few weeks ago, uh, we saw God's people 
enter into the land, and the first big military objective for the people is the city of Jericho. So they march around it, blow their trumpets, and God gives the city of Jericho into their hands. Remember that from a few weeks ago. Uh, Last week, though, the Israelites' second military objective didn't go so smoothly. They tried to take the city of Ai. Then, because of Achan's sin, God let that small city defeat them. But that was, so that was chapter 7, we're skipping out chapter 8, but if we were to read chapter 8, we'd see that even though it went badly initially, eventually God does give the people of Ai into, into God's hands. So at this stage in the story, the Israelites have had two big victories, Jericho and Ai. And as we get into the drama of chapter 9, what we find is that, as is so often in life, success has sort of fueled the flames of opposition. And that is what's happening. So have a look down with me, will you, at uh, verse 1. We're on page 223 if you've closed your Bibles. We see opposition against God's people. Verse 1. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, that's Jericho and Ai, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Uh, An alliance, a coalition, coming together to wage war against God's people. And obviously, from their point of view, from a political and from a military perspective, it makes makes perfect sense. There's There's a new power in town, the Israelites. But for those of us who are following the Bible story, we know that there is a whole lot more here at stake than mere political or military considerations. So you'll know that hundreds of years before this, uh, these events occurred, God made a promise to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. In fact, he made, made four promises. Firstly, that God, that God said, I'm, I'm going to make you into a great people. Secondly, I'm going to bless you with a land. I'm going to drive out, that's what's going on here, I'm going to drive out the immoral peoples of Canaan. I'm going to give you a land. Thirdly, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your people. And fourthly, through you, I'm going to bless the world. And as we read on in the Bible, we, we find out actually what God is promising. He's saying, through Abraham, through his people, he is going to reverse what went wrong at the fall. So when we see all these kings lining up against God's people, yes, in one sense it's it's military, it's political, but really what they are doing is uniting to oppose God's plan of salvation. Now look, actually, what the writer is doing here is just kind of teeing up this idea of kind of direct, big, uh, sort of axis coalition against God's people. He's teeing it up and we'll have to wait till next week to see what happens when they actually fight a battle. This week though, we're dealing with the Gibeonites. You see, sometimes the the opposition against God's plan of salvation will be overt. It will be easy to spot. Other times it will be underhand and deceptive, like, like what's going on with the Gibeonites, underhand. And in the battle we face as Christians, our enemies, Satan, sin, are very often underhand and deceptive. 
So as we dive in and see what's happening with the Gibeonites, here are the, here are the two lessons. Here are the two lessons that we need to know, that we need to understand as we live our lives, as we battle on as Christians day by day. And the first of them is this, a prayerless people are easily duped. A prayerless people are easily duped, verses 4 to 15. Excuse me, verses 3 to 15. So verse 3, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. Now look, it seems to me, I mean, I'm evidently no, no fashion expert, but it does, it does seem to me, I mean, and I googled this to check it, from my own observation though, it does seem to me that ripped jeans are coming back into fashion. Is that, is that right? And of course, ripped jeans, part of that bigger category of what you call distressed clothing, which is, which is clothing that you buy that is already designed to look old. Now, uh, I think that's silly, but that's because I'm old and grumpy and turning more and more into my dad. But anyway, what, what the Gibeonites have gone right in for it. They've gone down to next. They've bought a whole load of uh, distressed clothing. And then verse 5, they put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. Okay, and then verse 5, all the bread of their food supply was moldy. Their, their packed lunches look like they've come straight from the apprentice kitchen. Verse, uh, verse 12, just skip, skip down, with, will you, to verse 12. They, they say, this bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home and on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. See, the, the loaded donkeys, the worn out clothes, the dry and moldy packed lunches, they're, they're all designed to convince Joshua and the people of Israel that their journey started a long time ago in a country far, far away. In verse 6 they say, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. So that's what's going on. We might ask ourselves, what? Why? how does this work? Well, it seems to me that the Gibeonites probably know something of the rules of engagement that God sent his people into the land of Canaan with. We won't turn back there, but if you were to, if you were to turn back to Deuteronomy 20, you'd hear God say that, Look, when you, when you get into, into the land of Canaan, all the, all the, all the people there, all the, the people who've been practicing um, wicked, immoral things, all the people who uh, I've said I'm going to drive out, you, you are to annihilate them. That's what God said in Deuteronomy 20 to the, to the people who live there. But in Deuteronomy 20, God also says, if, if you go up against a, a people or a city who live a long way away, then if those people are willing to um, offer themselves to you as slaves, you can, you can let them live. And so it's probably something like that that's going on. The Gibeonites have heard somehow that that's what God has said. And so they're trying to trick the Israelites into thinking that they themselves as Gibeonites have come from a long 
way away. Israelites are not too sure. Verse 9, the Gibeonites add to their deception. They're smart. Verse 9, they, uh, they say all the right things. Verse 9, they, they've got a sort of a veneer of religiosity using all the, all the right language. So verse 9, they say, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. I say, we've come for the fame of the Lord. That sounds, sounds promising, doesn't it? It's kind of, kind of what you'd want to hear as an Israelite. Well, they're very clever. You see, they, they don't, verse 9, they don't mention Jericho or Ai. They don't mention the battles that happened nearby and recently. They actually mention two battles, um, or the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. They mention stuff that happened longer ago and further away. So it's all part of this deception to convince the Israelites that they're kind of not from around here. What do you think? Do you think, do you think you'd have been taken in if you, if you were Joshua or one of the elders or one of the people? Look, the evidence looks quite compelling, doesn't it? The Israelites do still have their doubts. But then the crucial mistake, I think this is where the text points us to, is there in verse 14. The Israelites sampled the Gibeonites' provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. That's to say, they they forgot to pray about it. You see, uh, the thing is, realize this, the Israelites weren't foolish here. I mean, in many cases in in the Old Testament, they are complete idiots, but here, they're they're not foolish. They're They're not rash they have a healthy skepticism. They look at the evidence. By every human metric, they're actually being pretty wise. But here's the thing. They forgot to pray about it. And in the face of a devious enemy, that means they were duped. Verse 15. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Prayerless people are easily duped. That'd be a good lesson for us, wouldn't it? In our battle as Christians, in our battle with the devious enemy of Satan, the devious enemy of our own sin. See, do you think that Satan and sin are any less deceptive than the Gibeonites? Do you think that Satan, the father of lies, might just have the ability to get one over on you if you're prayerless? Do you think that sin, which is described, we saw this last week, that's described in the Bible as as something that can ensnare us and enslave us, do you think that sin might just have the ability to deceive you if you're prayerless? So remember, the Israelites were acting wisely, just, just not prayerfully. Now look, I just, want, I just want to pause here. This is a bit of a sort of timeout or in brackets or whatever. It's, it's, 
I'm not saying that you, you set those two things against each other. You don't sort of set prayerfulness or wisdom against each other in, your, in the battle as a Christian or in your decision making. It's not a choice between, oh, you use your brain but you forget about prayer, or you're really, really holy and prayerful but you chuck your brain out the window. No, the Bible, the Bible would say, in the battle as a Christian, when you're making decisions, when you're doing anything, do both. You use your brain and you pray hard. The, the warning here is particularly towards make sure you pray. And, and I, think, I think most of us, that's the warning we need to hear most, isn't it? I think, I think most of us probably would be content to sort of, oh yeah, I'll use my brain, oh, I know what's going on, I'll make decisions. Here is the warning. Pray. Because a prayerless people are easily duped. See, sin and Satan would love to dupe you in the big things and in the minutiae of life. So pray. Pray pray before you post that thing on social media. Even if you think you're right, Satan would love to dupe you into generating more heat than light. Pray before you have that chat with your friend. You may well be right. You may well have the answer they need in their their situation. But Satan would love to dupe you into... um, into being heavy-handed rather than a peacemaker. Pray before challenging someone who's offended you. You might have all wisdom on your side. You might be able to spin the situation using the right language and the right Bible verses into convincing yourself you're in the right. Your sin would love to trick you into thinking you're in the right when actually you're not. Pray before you take on an extra responsibility at work. Yes, from any human metric, it might be entirely wise to try and impress your boss with that piece of work. But Satan would love you to overcommit at the expense of midweek, midweek stuff here at church. Satan and sin would love to dupe us into making decisions that would go against his word or at the very least sort of stifle his his plan of salvation in our lives so the lesson from verse 14 of chapter 9 is is pray a prayerless people are easily duped but look if if that though was where the story ended that would be quite a quite a terrifying message wouldn't it because if the success of God's plan of salvation in broad terms or even in you know its progress in our own lives if that that was ultimately dependent upon me not being duped by Satan or sin then I would feel on very very shaky ground our final point then our second lesson really if you like about how to how to live the Christian battle is this God is more gracious than anyone expects. God is more gracious than anyone expects. See, I, th- I think that is what you would have to conclude. If, if you were an Israelite sort of meditating on this, uh, the story of the Gibeonites, sort of what, God, why did you allow this incident, incident to occur? Why is it recorded for us in scripture? I think that is what you would have to conclude the point is. God is more gracious than anyone expects. So let me just let me try and um, explain why I think that. You see, let's uh, let's see how the story unfolds. 
Have a look, verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. Verse 16, they they realize they've been duped. And so the Israelites send a posse to investigate. And when they get there, it seems like Joshua and the leaders had to kind of rein the people back in. The people were in for a bit of sort of mob justice. They They wanted to annihilate the Gibeonites anyway. Verse 18, end of verse 18, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. And then verse 20, skip down to verse 23. Joshua says to the Gibeonites, you are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And finally skip down to verse 27. That day, Joshua made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are today, to this day. So the Gibeonites do get their wish. Then They're not annihilated by God's people. But I don't know. I don't know what you think. When I, when I first read this, I have to say, oh, it doesn't, that doesn't sound like the best or the greatest result for the Gibeonites, though, does it? I mean, they're, they're slaves, they're woodcutters, they're water carriers. Why am, I, why am I sort of saying that this shows God's grace? Well, come with me. Let's, let's just have a look and a think about this. Look at verse 26. So Joshua saved them, that's the Gibeonites, from the Israelites. And they did not kill them. It's, it's interesting that Joshua is described uh, as a saviour there. Now look, on the, on, in the first instance, all, all it's talking about is Joshua just um, stopping the mob, beating them up and killing them. But as the history of God's people and the Gibeonites unfolds, actually you realise there, there is more to it than that. As you, as you see the history develop, you do realise that this is, a, this is a genuine salvation for the Gibeonites. I'll have to wait till next week, but for a start, when we do get to next week, you'll see that the Israelites are true to this alliance they've made with the Gibeonites, and they go to war on behalf of the Gibeonites when a whole axis of other kings want to destroy the Gibeonites. So the Israelites, the Israelites rescue them then. But actually, I think it's what happens to the Gibeonites in the long term that convinces me that this is an outworking of God's grace. So you know, you know what happens to God's people. They, they do enter the land. Uh, it doesn't go particularly well for them. Well, it does, it kind of does at first, but then over hundreds of years, they, they rebel against God, and eventually God says, I've had enough. So he, he, God sends the people of Israel out of the land, and for 70 years, they are exiled in Babylon. After that time, though, God brings them back into the land. And if we were to flick on to the book of Nehemiah, which describes that, that journey, or I suppose that, that pilgrimage back to the land, and if we were to look at the list of the people who come back into the land after 70 years in exile, who do you find listed? You find the Gibeonites listed. And in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you find the Gibeonites working side by side with ethnically Jewish people, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. 
You see, the Gibeonites are devious, but ultimately they get far, far better than they deserve. And the Bible's teaching is that is true of every person on this planet. We get far, far better than we deserve from God. God is more gracious than anyone expects or realizes. Have a closer look. Have a closer look at verse 24 as well with me. The Gibeonites answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. See, the the Gibeonites thought that all that was ever going to be on offer to them was slavery. But yet, what we've already seen from from an example later on is what is eventually offered to them is full and inclusive membership of God's people. And there may well be some here tonight, actually, who think that that is the Christian message. That, that all that you can hope from a relationship with God is a kind of a master-slave relationship like the Gibeonites. You, you may be someone who's not a Christian, you think that. You may be someone who is a Christian who thinks that. That all that, all is, that is on offer is a master-slave relationship. The example of the Gibeonites teaches us that God is far more gracious than any of us realizes or expects. I'll be honest, in, in truth, in truth, it's, it's not entirely clear what would have happened if the Gibeonites hadn't been deceptive. If they had come openly and honestly to Joshua and said, look, we are from, we are from around the block, but uh, we fear your God and we are committed to living with him as Lord. It's not entirely clear what would have happened, but there's very strong evidence from what happened with Rahab. You remember um, chapter 2. There's very strong evidence to suggest that, that anyone who comes to the Lord in repentance, anyone who comes to the Lord and says, I am willing to bow before you and live with you as my God will be accepted. It's not not entirely sure from the book of Joshua how they would have been treated. But, But for you and I, you and I who have the benefit of God's full plan of salvation revealed to us in scripture, it is entirely clear what is on offer to us in terms of our relationship with God. God is not offering us a relationship of a master and a slave. That's, remember, that's what, the, that's what the prodigal son thought when he'd totally blown it with God and he realizes that he, realized that he was a total muck-up and he, and he said, I'm going to come back to my father and I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm not worthy to be treated as one of your servants. Take me back as a slave. That's what he thought. He did not realize that the character of his father is far more gracious, far more loving than he could have possibly 
expected. When over the brow of the hill, he sees his father running to him, falling on him, embracing him, weeping and saying, welcome home, my son. You see, whether you're not a Christian or whether you would call yourself a Christian, you need to know that the type of relationship that is on offer is not just master-slave. It is father-son. It is father-daughter. Jesus died on the cross for you to offer you that kind of relationship. And if you've never realized that or never experienced that, then your, your walk with the Lord could change forever tonight. Please do, please do grab me afterwards if you'd like to speak more about that. See, knowing that we relate to God as sons and daughters is is a massive, massive encouragement if and when we do find that we, because of our prayerlessness or whatever, have been duped by sin and Satan. Because when a child makes a mistake, a parent doesn't just abandon them and say, oh, I give up on my plans for you. You've made a mistake. You you were duped by, by your naughtiness. Of course they don't. See, Israel... Israel makes a mistake here. Gibeah are, are, are deceptive here. But it is not the end of God's plan to, to bless them. It's not the end. And we'll see much, much more of that next week. And it may be that, that you look back on events of your life where you, be honest, you, have, you have been duped by sin or Satan, where you have made mistakes Something you did when you were younger, a, a bad relationship decision, a, a foolish choice. Well, the story of the Gibeonites says, take heart. God is far more gracious than anyone expects. You have not blown it. Recommit to the Lord. He used the Israelite mistake here to, to further his plans to bless the Gibeonites and in, and in Yes, by extension, the world. And he is well able to weave into the tapestry of, of our lives even the mistakes we've made, even the times when we've been duped, even the times when we've given in to sin. He's able to weave that into our lives in his wisdom to make something more beautiful. We are in a battle. We fight against Satan and sin Enemies who are subtle and devious. The story of the Gibeonites reminds us that in this battle, yes, we need to guard ourselves by prayer, lest we be duped. But even when we are, God is far more gracious than we expect or realize. Let me pray. Father, forgive us our prayerlessness, forgive us our reliance on our own strength and our own wisdom. We are sorry, and we ask that you will help us to be a more prayerful people. And yet, even as we recommit ourselves to that, we would tremble were it not for the fact that you are a gracious God. You are a gracious God who is able to bring good out of mistakes, good out of the times when we do get duped. We praise you for your grace and we thank you that what is on offer is not a master-servant relationship, but the relationship with you as our Father. Amen.